The people that have grit are the ones that simply outwork the other ones. And it sounds so cliche, but still today, if I look at what sets the, the top of the leaderboard apart from the bottom, it's always the person who gets up early in the morning and works late at night and is always trying to get better, always trying to find an advantage, never, ever, ever gives up on a deal. And those are the people. And, and to me, that's great. Hi, I'm Juven, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. On today's show, we're really lucky to have an incredible guest, Jeff St. Clair. Jeff is someone that for me has meant a lot, both personally and professionally. He took a shot on me straight out of college when he probably shouldn't have and has taught me so, so many things along the way that I'm excited to give a, a glimpse of all the amazing Jeffisms that everyone's about to hear. We focus on two topics in this episode that I think Jeff is uniquely qualified to discuss based on his experience. The first is around discovering and coaching talent, and the second is trying to understand the makeup of a world-class sales rep. Jeff is known as one of the most dynamic and forward-thinking sales leaders in the Valley, but more importantly, he's an incredibly thoughtful, humble, grounded, genuine human. He has a list of people that have worked with him and for him that absolutely gush and rave about him, and I think you'll understand why. I can't wait for you folks to hear from him. Before we jump in with our amazing guest today, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Loom. If you haven't heard of Loom, you should definitely check them out. They're bringing video messaging to work. Using Loom is like sending a text instead of making a phone call, but you're using video. You don't need to schedule anything or coordinate with anyone. Just record, hit stop, and a link to your video message is instantly ready to share. Turns out it's really good for sales. Our portfolio companies use Loom when they're doing outreach, and sending a demo video is just so much more engaging than an email. It's super fast, fun, and the best part, it's free. Sign up today at loom.com. And now onto this episode. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Juman. Excited to be here. We've worked together for a while. You finally got rid of me. Maybe if you could just start with your story, how'd you get to where you are today? And how'd you get into sales? Yeah, sure. So, so it's a big question. So I'll try to be precise with the answer. Really, when I go back to even looking at myself in college, I was going to be a coach, right? And I loved coaching and athletics. And I, I loved coaching and athletics for what I got back out of it. It made me feel good to motivate people, to see them be successful. I thought it was a great challenge. I love to be around competitors. So that's kind of naturally how I grew up was around athletics and sports. And the first time that I found that feeling again was in a startup in the Silicon Valley. And so when I came out to California from Iowa, one of my first jobs was with the startup. And I realized, wow, I can have that same feeling of, that I get from coaching in a startup. And that's really how it started. My career here has been you know, a lot of startups. So uh, I can think of Evident.io, Ironport, a couple of successful startups, and also some big companies as well. But by and large, I love startups and I love what they give back to me. And I think it ultimately is kind of the competitive nature that's within me and, and who I am. Makes total sense. Do you ever think when you're coaching the kids, like even today, I know you do a lot of coaching, soccer and football, and you're kind of super dad in that respect. Do you ever think about the coaching that you do at work and try and apply that to the boys? 
Or alternatively, do you ever think about the coaching that you do with the boys in their sports and apply that to work and career? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. So look, I mean, if you can get a bunch of six-year-olds to run a football play, you're a pretty good coach, right? So I think that's, number one, that's the hardest thing to do. You know, the, the irony of it is I think the principles are the same, right? I think people like to be pushed. They like to try to do things beyond their capacity. I think people in general like to feel something bigger than themselves, and that's what a team is. So, you know, ironically, I think they're pretty similar. <laughs> I think about that all the time, if and when I, I have uh, kids. Hopefully, I'm not going to be the hardo dad that tries and, uh, you know, does the QBRs and the OKRs for my child's softball <laughs> league. I want to talk about a couple of topics with you, things that you and I have talked about in the past, things that I think are near and dear to both of our hearts. The first is touching on what we just talked about, which is discovering and coaching talent. Keith Boy, Peter Thiel, a couple of VCs in the Valley, they talk a lot about how you have to find undiscovered talent. And the quote that they say is, you can't build a startup by processing the same people in the same way that everybody else does. I thought that was really insightful. And I think it's especially true when you're building sales teams, hiring the right people, making bets on people. How do you react to that? And I think maybe I'll just be specific. When you're at a startup, it's pretty hard to compete with Palo Alto Networks, Google, Amazon, with these big companies. So sometimes you do have to uh, find that diamond in the rough. I guess, how do you think about that? Yeah, so I think it's a really good thought. And look, I think it goes to every successful startup that I have built has been built with the right DNA versus the right resume. And I think it's really important at a startup to look for those people who have great, great potential, but they may not be living in a normal situation. So I'll give you an example. I've hired a person who sold a million dollars in mattresses. He was successful in my startup. I've hired people right out of college. They've been successful in the startup environment. I hired a woman who was working for an NBA basketball team in the marketing department. She was really successful, right? And so I think there's this notion of looking for very positive, passionate, motivated, smart people who do not want to fail and want to be a part of something greater than themselves. And they like the idea of, you know, it's a small boat, but if we all get in and row in the right direction, we'll make it there, right? And those are the people that you have to look for and you have to find, and you absolutely have to find it in other areas. You don't want the person who's worked at Oracle for 10 years, who's applying at IBM and some other places. You don't want that person for a lot of reasons. And so, yes, I agree that you have to find the talent from other places. And then once you have it, you have to develop it differently as well. And I think double-clicking on the point that you made, so mattress salesman, how do you qualify? Like if you're just looking at a resume, you have 45 minutes, you have an interview, you haven't worked with this person before, what are you looking for? What are like some of the leading indicators of, man, this person could be a really special sales rep. This person is, you know, someone that hasn't been processed before, that kind of undiscovered gem. What are you looking for? Maybe specific things in an interview, qualities, traits. Sure. I, you know, I think look, there's some baseline traits that you just can't get around. Someone has to be intelligent. And, you know, there's certain ways in an interview you can find out, hey, are they a complex thinker? Can they, can they solve a complex problem? Right. I think that's important. So you have to, you have to understand that. You have to understand where someone's at in their life. I think it's really important to understand someone at a personal level and understand, hey, where are they now and where do they want to go? Right. Because for, for it to be a perfect fit, it's got to be a great fit for them, a great fit 
for you as their leader and a great fit for the company. It's got to be right for all three to be a perfect situation. So you have to understand where they're at in their life. The other thing is, I think it's so important to spend a lot of time to assess if someone is competitive. The best people I've ever hired in my entire life are harder on them than I could ever be. They push themselves harder than I can ever be. They wake up at 4.30 in the morning, not because I call them, but because they want to be successful. And that is such a key thing. You know, one of my favorite interview questions, and, and you know this, Juban, because I asked you this, what motivates you more, the thrill of winning or the fear of failure? I think there's one right answer to that. It's the fear of failure. Any competitive person does not want to lose. So that's just an example of one question that I would ask to assess that. But ultimately, it's got to be the right fit for them at the time of their life. They got to be highly intelligent, and highly competitive. That makes sense. And I know some of the things that you do in an interview outside of asking the questions that might qualify for that. I'll give you an example. One of the things that, that, that we've talked about before is that you'll intentionally show up to an interview slouching. You won't be upright and you'll be probably better dressed than they'll be. Why do you do that? Like, what are little tactical things that you do in an interview, maybe like slouching? What are you looking for in that candidate? Uh, like, look, I think, yeah, there's all sorts of, of little tricks of the trade that everyone has there. The interview should be someone's best. That's their best moment. That's their best moment. So, you know, the slouching example, or if someone sits back in a very casual posture, the other person may kind of take that bait and sit way back and think this is not a very important event. It's a really important thing. If you're interviewing for a job, you're sitting up, you're ready to go, you have your notes out, you have all of your questions prepared for that moment, right? So it's a little bit of a challenge to see if they're ready for that moment and, and how prepared they are. I think that's really important. The other thing is, a big part of assessing someone during an interview is what questions they ask me. You know, and ultimately, sometimes that defines the entire interview. If someone is thoughtful, really wants to understand the job, wants to know more about me and my leadership style, would they work for me? Right? That should be an important thing for them. That that's also a very key indicator of is that the right person? Couldn't agree more. One of the things that we've thought about a lot that I've thought about a lot is that recruiting and hiring and discovering this talent is often a team sport. So there is, I think, one round of the interview that might be you. You know, I know personally, I tend to be an optimist when it comes to talent. I tend to do more recruiting as opposed to really trying to qualify if that person is the right fit for us. How do you think about the team sport mentality around actually putting someone through an interview panel or surrounding them with maybe folks that have different skills than you in assessing different types of talent? Sure. I think it's so important. And especially in a startup environment, if you're a startup, there's a couple of reasons you do that. You don't want to make a unilateral decision in a startup. You want everyone to feel like we've brought someone into the company. We all collectively agree this person is going to be an asset and help us raise the bar. And it's just good for the company morale. When a company is 20 people or 10 people or 30 people, one person is highly meaningful. So there's a cultural reason to do it. And then I also think no matter what anybody tells you, I've made and I've made mistakes as well. It is an art, not a science. And, and so hiring is an art. You need as many people to weigh in on that as possible to see things that you may or may not see. A VP of engineering is going to see the world differently than I would, or a VP of product or a VP of customer success. So let's all triangulate on this person, understand their strengths and weaknesses from multiple viewpoints, and then decide collectively, hey, is this a good idea? And the other reason that's important is Nothing goes perfectly. Everybody struggles at times. If someone you bring on board collectively is struggling, everyone surrounds them to help them. 
versus points the finger and says, hey, why did you hire that person? So I think that's also another key reason to make sure that you have a kind of a collective process in hiring. So obviously you've been at both big companies and small. I think the qualification criteria is different. You know, most recently you ran sales for a successful startup that got acquired by Palo Alto Networks. That's where we both were. And you've built an incredible team really running the Americas for the cloud team at Palo Alto Networks. And you built the team and hired a lot of freaking people. So in that vein, when you're hiring at a company, the scale, size, and stature of a Palo Alto, does that hiring profile look different for you than it is at a 50-person startup and how? Yeah. So I guess I'll first start off by saying, yes, it's different. And these are my comments, not, not Palo Alto Networks, but just looking at it could be Palo Alto or any other company at scale. So there's, there's just different things. And I, what I've learned is, you know, if a startup is 10 people and you're putting your first sales rep on the ground, that's a very different person than if you're hiring someone in a business that is at scale, right? So I'll give you some examples of that. Maybe the, the startup person that's working in the company of 10 people, they need to have solid relationships across the top 25 CISOs in their patch. They just have to. They have to be able to open the doors. They have to be highly, highly technical and sophisticated, and they have to be a direct seller for the most part, right? If you look at someone at scale, it might be a little different. They may have to work with SIs like Accenture, for example, to, to create more complex long-term deals. They may have to work more extensively with a channel. Relationships become a little less important because the company is so big that the doors are already open. But you have to be able to understand how to work in a matrixed organization. Well, what does that mean? Well, we have multiple sales teams selling to the same account at the same time. Maybe you have to have someone who understands how to create ELAs and has more of an understanding around long-term multi-million dollar deals. So those are the types of things that you look at at scale. And again, the startup person is different. There are a few situations, I will tell you, not many that I've seen where you find a person who can go from startup to scale and be successful. And those are really the most amazing sales reps who can do both. Okay. So you found the talent, you've identified them. Awesome. Like you got your guy, you feel like this guy or gal has unlimited potential. How do you develop that talent? What are some things that you do or things that you don't do around developing that high potential person? Yeah, I think it's important when you find talent in juvenile, use you as an example, right? When you find someone who kind of fits all of those things, I think the biggest thing is those people are motivated. They want to do more. And so you give them more. And I think you constantly give them opportunities to push themselves beyond their current capacity so they learn and they grow. And that's typically what people want, what high performers want, right? So if you can continually find situations where you can actually expose them to other situations and other people and give them opportunities to grow, that works really, really well. The worst thing you can do as a manager is kind of hide your good person or kind of limit them to slow down their growth, thinking you'll keep them longer. I've actually had more success with doing the exact opposite, putting people way out in front, exposing them uh, across the board. They make some mistakes, but the really, really good ones love that. And I think they continue to grow and, and stay with you longer because of it. Thanks for the kind words. Jury's still out on that. So those folks, the high potential folks, I think in sales, it's one of the unique career paths where... If you're a high potential sales rep, at some point you go from maybe an SMB to a mid-market to an enterprise sales rep, and pretty quickly you become really dang good at being an enterprise sales rep. And maybe that takes a while, maybe that's pretty quick, but nonetheless, at some point, 
That's really the ceiling of that role. And it's a doggone good job because you get paid really well. You have flexibility and autonomy in what you do. You're making meaningful contributions to the business. But at some point, at least in my experience, every one of those sales reps typically gets to that aha moment where they say, huh, I don't want to be the rep anymore. I want to try my hand in leadership or in in managing people. But they have no experience doing that. And a lot of the time, what made them a great rep is the antithesis of what makes them a great leader. What do you do? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the most honest answer is most of those people are not good managers. That's the honest truth. Most reps that I've been around who are highly successful, competitive people who have just overachieved in an individual contributor capacity are not wired to be leaders. And when I say that, it's not a negative. They're very selfish in what they do because they have to own it and control it. And that's why they're good. When you step into a leadership role, there's this unique kind of break in that model. You have to be competitive in all those things, but instead of selfish, you're selfless, right? Because now your success is dependent on others. So I've seen very few people that have spent the majority of their career in an IC role become a good manager. There's a few exceptions. And I guess the point of this is when you find a good person who is a competitive good sales rep who can be a leader, I think you should try to get them in a leadership track as soon as possible and try to grow their career that way. And what about the rep that wants to just stay as an individual contributor? Life is good. Jeff, why would I ever, you know, sometimes I even ask myself, why did I do this? You, you know, all of a sudden your time becomes somebody else's and it's pretty stressful. What about the guy or gal that says, you know what? I'm good here. How do you, after they've been doing it for 15, 20 years, they have the relationships, they know what they're doing, they've been in the industry for a while. I think a lot about how do you make that person better? And maybe the question is, can you make that person better? Oh, I definitely think you can. And I, I, I'm laughing with you. I often wonder why I'm, I'm still not a rep because it is a great <laughs> job, right? <laughs> no, look, I, I think, you know, you have to be really, really careful where people don't get stagnant. But, you know, if you have the right person they're always asking for more, always trying to find the next angle, always trying to make their territory better and, and find the next patch that's a little better than the one they have. And I think as a leader, you need to continue to put them in positions where they're successful or they can see a fair opportunity to be successful. And that's the best thing you can do for those people. And at times, mix it up a little bit. Hey, you've worked this account for a really long time. You've done a good job. I have a new challenge for you. Right. And look, it's a big challenge, but there's a huge upside. You know, you have to mix it up a little bit with those people to continue to, you know, make sure their their sword is sharp and they continue to grow and they stay motivated. And Jeff, if you're an aspiring sales leader today, you are one of those ICs, maybe you're earlier in your career. What are some things they could start doing today now to start preparing themselves for that role? Yeah, I get that question all the time. And it's kind of a tough answer. The biggest thing you you have to do is you have to hit your number. You have to be a consistent performer over an extended period of time. So that's like number one. You have to earn the right to go after the job when the job comes up. And in any meritocracy, that's based off the numbers. But in addition to that, you have to do things that are outside of your role. And this is where it usually falls down for a lot of people. But you have to go outside of your comp plan and go do some things for the greater good and become that leader. So the people who get those manager jobs, typically everyone already knows they're going to get it before they get it because that's the person on the team that they ask the questions to. 
hey, they have a competitive situation. I'm going to ask that person because they always know the answer. I need help with the proposal. I'm not going to go to my boss. I'm going to go to this person. They're better. They know the answer to that, right? I need a, some help negotiating this deal. I'm going to go to this person because they're just good at it and, and they're willing to share. And so in that last little part is a critical one, willing to share and willing to help because sales reps are so competitive. They're often so competitive, they won't help each other. But the manager will because they're not, they're not scared of that. They have the confidence to go help somebody else and they're not threatened by that. And I think that's a unique part of it as well. So I think those are the things that I've seen people do that make the jump. Makes sense. So going back to your point about competitiveness, I know culture matters to you. I'm not going to ask you, does culture matter to you in sales? I think your reputation precedes you around building teams with high integrity, strong culture. How do you hire a team of highly competitive people and still maintain a strong, and when I say competitive, these are typically highly individualistic, sometimes selfish, you know, sometimes motivated by very selfish reasons, ultimately highly, highly competitive want to win. They want to beat everybody else. How can you build a team culture with a bunch of folks that have that grit, that really have that, that competitive spirit that they want to beat you? Yeah, it's a, it's a fine, it's a very, very fine line. But I think you've heard me say this before. Well, you know, when I hire people, I look for people who are going to win a street fight with character, like really hard to find, right? How do you find someone who's going to compete and play the game to win almost at all cost, but they're going to do it with character? And you go kind of go back to your original question around the interview. And then there's this common thread of integrity that you have to find within people. And if you don't find that, you shouldn't hire them. And I, I believe that sincerely. You have to find that thread of integrity because they not only have to be competitive, but they have to have the character aspect and they have to at some level care about the team. And you find people who will be so, so competitive and they'll win and they'll win, but they'll also understand that they have to do it in the context of the team and we win together and we lose together. It's a very hard thing to find. I've, I've made mistakes hiring people who have been too competitive. I've let people go who are too competitive. And I think you know this to be true. I've let people go who are at the top of my leaderboard because they were so dysfunctionally competitive, it didn't work. And I think you have to just keep that in mind. I want to double click on that, the last point you made. This is one of the biggest challenges that I face personally, and, and I'm just really curious to hear your perspective. What happens when you have the rep who is number one, absolute all-star, and maybe he's on your team or she's on your team, maybe you're interviewing and they have, you know, the board has advocated for them, they've had the number one track record at every company and startup they've been at, but their reputation precedes them. They're a pain in the butt. And there's a lot of these sales reps that are extremely good. Again, going back to the comment of what makes them good is that they can be a pain in the butt because they're always asking about territory and comp plan and doing things that can put them in their own best position to succeed. Do you make that higher or do you not? And how do you balance kind of, man, one bad apple could ruin the bunch here, but geez, if I had this guy that could do 30, 40% of my number, that's pretty special. How do you balance that or think about it? Yeah, no, I think about, I, I think about it a lot. And I'll tell you the answer to that. If you're building a team from scratch, there's no one person that can trump the team, period. So you have to find that common thread of integrity and teamwork in there. Now, look, there are people that will push that line for sure. But if they're willing to push and push and push, but you can pull them back and they can be a part of it, then great. If they can't, then they shouldn't be on the team. 
Now, the hard part is sometimes you'll inherit people who are like that, right? And then you have to deal with that aspect of it. And that's a little harder. But if you're building a team from scratch, do not bring in the bad apple, find somebody else. And would that hire, if you're building a team from scratch, would hire number one be different for you than what you're looking for in hire number five? Is there a different profile that you're looking for in hire number one versus number five? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, you look at hire number one, hire number one is along with you as the sales leader, you're creating a playbook, you're writing it, you're, you're still determining what that playbook looks like. So you need someone who fits that mold, you know, rep number five or rep number 25, they're more hopefully snapping into something that's already there. They're going to, of course, add to it. That's still a very early stage situation, but being the first is a highly, highly creative individual who can go create deals out of nothing. And as you go further on down the road, you need someone who can kind of snap in, learn and execute. So they're absolutely two different people. And this is leading the witness a little bit, but let's say you were the CEO of a company. Let's say you, Jeff St. Clair, was not the VP of sales and you weren't making the first sales hire. The CEO was. A lot of the time, the startups that, that I work with, you know, they bias towards, hey, we want this leader that is going to be able to eventually scale and recruit and grow this business. But what they miss is that they got to get their first 10 customers on board. Otherwise, there's no scaling happening at all. So again, kind of leading the witness, but if you were hiring the first AE and you weren't on board, but you were the CEO, what are you biasing towards? What are the things that you're looking for? Are you trying to find that leader that can also sell and if you had to pick one or the other, are you taking the leader that can ultimately build that team? Or is it the sales rep that you probably know won't grow into that leader, but can sure as hell get you those first 10 customers? I want the first 10 customers. Kind of goes back to my earlier point. Rarely can you find someone who can go from true raw startup to scale. That is a unique, very unique individual. There's not many of those out there. And so you have to look at the stage that you're at and pick the winner in that stage and understand and be realistic about where you are. You can always hire above and, and build out and all those things, but you need those first 10, 20 customers. You have to find someone who is just a lethal hunter who can go get those. And guess what? They get those and they scale great. But I think you have to understand that you have to find the hunter first, worry about scale, you know, leadership capacity second, because you can fix that later. When you're hiring that rep, when do you think is the right time? Do you think before you have customers? Do you think it's at customer 10, customer 20, when it's the right appropriate time to hire that first sales rep and why? Yeah, look, I think there has to be a handful of customers. And it, look, that question does depend on the market you're selling into, the product that you're selling. There's just kind of a lot of nuances to that question. But I think ultimately having 10 to 20 customers that the founding team brings on board is a great start and you would feel highly confident bringing in a sales rep. What I don't think is the right call is to have zero customers come out of stealth and kind of give it off to a sales rep because I think the tension that will be created there between the teams will be significant. And you wanna have some learnings on how you go to market, what that motion looks like. Do we have product market fit yet? Are there some corrections we need to make? So, I, I mean, I would say 10 to 10 to 20 customers, but of course there's, you know, depends on the market and the product. Yep. And maybe this is a weird question, so answer it how you may, but that first rep, you got 10 customers, you want to get the best of the best. And typically that conversation, the reason that the best of the best want to start early is it's an equity conversation. And a lot of the time, 
sales reps that early will equate equity to title. Do you have any reservation giving a big title to that first sales rep, VP of sales, RVP, SVP, CRO, knowing that they probably won't scale? And how do you, how do you balance that? How do you manage that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't give them a title if I didn't think they were going to grow into it. So I guess I would answer your question. I, I think there's an ethical thing there. You know, if I really didn't think someone had the potential to be the VP of sales, or I wouldn't just give them that. Now, I think if there's a situation where someone's on the edge, I think leaning up is perfectly appropriate at a startup, right? So, hey, you're the first sales rep in, but we're going to call you a director because we want you to hire three or four reps next year, and you're going to need that title and we want you to be a leader in that capacity. But for right now, you have to operate as a rep. Like, I think that makes sense. And I think in fairness to the person, that, that makes sense. So I don't know if I answered that question completely, but I, I wouldn't you know, dramatically overinflate just to get somebody in there. But I think leaning in as appropriate is fine. It makes total sense. And when you hire that first sales rep, and this is a contextual question, so I don't want to do too broad of a stroke, but do you bias towards hey, maybe I should hire two sales reps because I need to discern, is it the rep or is it the product? And then a follow-up question to that, are you hiring a BDR lead generation person in tandem with that AE hire? Yeah, so I would say when you start to get to that critical point where you, you and the board have decided we're gonna add some sales capacity to this thing because we think this dog can hunt. I love the idea of two, not one. For the simple point that you mentioned, like it calibrates everyone. One's doing really well, one's not. Okay, it's the person. Also, there's a competitive aspect there and there's a teaming opportunity. They can help each other learn. Like there's a little bit of this, like the territories are both so big, it's just two of us. We can help each other there and learn faster as a team. And I think that's really important. So I would, I love the idea of at least two. And also there's gotta be a supporting cast to that rep, right? So not to say they each have to have their own SE, but maybe, and I love the idea of a BDR, like you have to give them something else to to help build out that virtual team that they go to market with. And I think if you don't, you are you are falling short of giving them an opportunity to be successful. I think a BDR investment is a great one for a couple of reasons. One, they're a low cost investment. Two, if you need to course correct, most of those people are young in their career and they can move and they're pretty agile and you can set them up somewhere else. So yeah, you have to, you have to give them uh, the, the support as well. Couldn't agree more. One of my last questions here, I want to be respectful of time. If you're a new leader or a manager, what are the top one, two things that you could do as a new leader or manager to help your sales reps? Yeah, look, I think it's really important as a leader that you focus on things that are really going to have a high impact for the team. And ideally, those are things that aren't a high priority today, right? Ideally, those are things that your team doesn't even see that are six months, 12 months, 18 months down the line. So can you help them? by creating a sales playbook that makes their life easier as they go to market? Can you help them by you know, working with the product team to, to fix certain critical things that are foundational to certain market segments, for example? Can you help them by ensuring the comp plan is structured in a fair and equitable way so everyone feels like, like they have a great opportunity? Can you help them by ensuring that they have the right resources to go to market with to be successful? You know, Can you help them by investing back in them with with enablement and some things to make them better at their job. All those things, I think, as a, as a leader are so important. So I can't stress enough. I think the best leaders that I've seen focus on highly impactful things that the team doesn't see at that point in time. And you know, conversely, the worst leaders I've seen 
focus on very low impact things that are right in their face. And so that's when you notice the good leaders versus the bad, right? So high impact things that nobody sees to make their life easier. And I think that's the best thing you can do for someone as a leader. I love it. I think that's a great place to wrap. Last question. The show is called Go to Market Grit. I think the word grit is really, really powerful and super meaningful in sales. What does the word grit mean to you? And how do you apply it? Or how have you applied it? Yeah, I mean, like grit is bringing your lunch pail to work and going to work every day. And sales is hard. And you have to work in an extremely intense job for a long period of time to be successful. And the people that have grit are the ones that simply outwork the other ones. And it sounds so cliche. But still today, if I look at what sets the, the top of the leaderboard apart from the bottom, it's always the person who gets up early in the morning and works late at night and is always trying to get better, always trying to find an advantage, never, ever, ever gives up on a deal. And those are the people. And, and to me, that's great. Jeff, if people want to get a hold of you, I know you don't have a Twitter. <laughs> How do they do it? How do you get a hold of Jeff St. Clair? Hey, anytime. Happy to talk with anybody. First of all, thank you, Jubin. I've, I've enjoyed the conversation and really excited that you're in your new job at, at Kleiner and I know you're going to do great things. Please hit me on LinkedIn at any time. I'm very responsive on LinkedIn or you can always reach out to me on my cell phone as well. Happy to connect and Jubin, you're, you're, uh, you're free to share that number as much as you'd like. Careful what you wish for. Thanks for the time, Jeff. <laughs> all right, take care. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you and I will see you next time.